All right, welcome to Escape from Plan A. This is your host, Teen. Got a special guest. Ali, Ali, how is it going? Pretty good. You and I are moots on uh, Twitter, right? What? I don't know what that means. <laughs> Mutuals. <laughs> oh, yeah. And um, you, yeah, we've talked about doing a pod together because I grew up in the, the D.C. suburbs uh, in Montgomery County, Maryland. And then you and I, like, you know, we're, we just kind of like, are interested in similar topics on Twitter. And then you kept bringing up or occasionally I would hear you leak out like this very, like a very strong opinion about the DC area, which really interested me because the one thing about DC is that I've experienced in my life is that nobody has any opinion about DC at all. (laughs) And so I was like, Whoa, you have an opinion about DC. What is it? You know? So uh, you know, I asked you a while ago if you wanted a pot about it, and if we finally got the chance today. Yeah, it's good to be here. I mean, I so I might do a bit more listening than talking. To be honest, that's kind of how I roll. Unless that's cool. Yeah. I mean, do you want to do you want to explain your 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 um your take on DC? Like, why why do you have such a strong opinion, and what is that opinion? Yeah, I mean, it seemed to, so it's kind of hard to, like, put it into, you know, words without getting really convoluted, but it seems to be, like, kind of a place that's combined, like, a very fast pace of life, but also a very kind of, I mean, kind of counterintuitively speaking, right, very conservative, kind of rather conservative kind of yes. kind of culture, and I don't mean this in a kind of red-blue voting way, right? Like, it's mm-hmm. kind of very, like, people, you know, there's kind of one mold and you have to fit it, so to speak. I've I've always thought of it <clears throat> like um, DC is sort of like the big time sophisticated city in a way, but for Middle America, uh, there was. Um, did you ever watch uh, Breaking Bad? There was an episode of that show where uh, the 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 FBI friend, the the friend who works for the FBI. He was like in line for promotion that would take him to headquarters in DC, and his wife was like, "Ooh, DC! I could see us there," you know. And I was like, "Yeah, that's exactly what DC is. It's sort of like the big time, but for like, sort of like Middle America, if that makes sense." Kind of. I mean, it's kind of, so like. I mean, it's not, that's not like, an insult. I'm just saying that's what I think of it as, sort of. Kind of. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it seems like a place where. So, D, I mean, DC, the DMV isn't really seen as Southern, right? Generally speaking right now, but I do kind of see elements of like Southern traits within the DMV that you don't necessarily find as strongly in like more purely Northern parts of the Northeast corridor, so to speak, like the Boston Washington corridor. So I kind of noticed there's a very, there's like a stronger adherence to like established sort of established institutions, established hierarchies mm. and sort of a sense of like suspicion for deviation from that, so to speak. But what, mean, what, are you, what are you comparing that against? Like where, where, like, what do you consider as like a comfy place in America for you, culturally speaking? Oh, God, that's a tough question. I mean, I do, I am like content enough with my current town, so to speak. So I've kind of grew up in a smaller town. So I'm not so much of a city person as maybe some other people here, at least in the US, US city, so to speak. Oh, I see. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But 
I mean, the cities I've lived in, I do generally like Denver and Minneapolis. But, so that's kind of more the vibe if you want to approximate mm. a vibe, so to speak. So generally, like, um, you know, more I, mid-sized, but not... I think, like, I'm so, thinking, like, Denver, crunchy, outdoorsy, uh, yeah. n- not, like, super urban. And Minneapolis, I don't really have, like, a strong feeling about Minneapolis other than like friendly and laid back I don't know yeah it's pretty laid back I mean both yeah. those cities are pretty outdoorsy I mean it's a bit it's a bit counterintuitive because Minneapolis right it's really cold but they're both kind of very like outdoorsy cities a lot of outdoor activity even in the winter so, yeah. so even in the winter like in Minneapolis there's a lot of skating on the lakes it gets cold enough there to skate on the lakes um you know a lot of cross-country skiing uh, but what interesting there what interested me was your very like brutal profiling of like the this sort of like uh, DC type, you know, and uh, that's the thing that really interested me because I kind of understand. And actually, uh, a lot of my friends who grew up with me in the Mar- in the Maryland burbs who yeah. are still there, they 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 fucking hate it there now. They're like, it's cha- I don't know if your impression of like DC came from a fairly recent uh, stay yeah. there or not, but yeah, it, it, they seem to think like in their own life that things got a lot worse and they really mm-hmm. attribute it to the other people. They do not like other people in the area anymore. Oh yeah. I mean like the thing is I'm not really, old. so like my parents do say it's like different in the nineties, but I'm not old enough to remember that. Um, but yeah, my main impression in DC is definitely like purely post-covid so i moved in you know 2022 ish and then but your parents uh spent time there uh when i was yeah when it 30 years ago but like i wouldn't remember that ah uh, okay well that that's when i was growing up there but yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. so yeah i don't i mean i don't know if it was different like pre-covid i just since i'm solely talking about this from a post-covid standpoint but I just kind of noticed, like, the decline in, like, social sort of social cohesion is, like, very, very prominent in D.C. compared with, like, other places I've been. So yeah, right, of, right, right. Like, people seem very, um, I don't know, people, like, it's, like, L.A. kind of has this, too. There's kind of an atmosphere of, like, anxiety and tension. And, like, it seems like people are just very, like, kind of, like, stressing in their own heads when they're out, when they're out and about. It, did you spend time, like, in the in dc itself or in 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 some of the like close in suburbs or uh so both so i spent some time in dc proper and also so i worked near the pentagon in arlington so i spent a lot of time there oh arlington okay yeah yeah (laughs) yeah that makes a lot of sense and like yeah that's i mean oh god fuck arlington that's all i gotta say yeah (laughs) yeah it i mean it is a super uptight place because like one of the, I mean, there's so many reasons why that is, but like one very obvious reason I think is because it's uh like half the fucking jobs in DC require like a security clearance now. Yep. And if you lose that clearance, you're done. Like you're, you can't get a job. So everyone's like super, I mean, they just carry around this, um, uh, like my, my parents or my father had a top secret clearance and he told me to actually leave. He was like, don't, don't work here because trust me, you don't want to live under that. And it, they just carry around this constant sense of being surveilled, which they are being surveilled. Oh yeah. Uh, and so they don't ever want to say the wrong thing. They don't ever want to do the wrong thing. And so everyone's just like super straight and arrow, straight and narrow 
because so much of the town is like contingent on you know having clearance and if not clearance like even just basic background checks are a lot more intense when you're working like for for a government or a government contractor oh yeah and it just it just creates this very like i don't know it it it, it almost seems you know like that movie office space have you yeah yeah it just it just felt like that like everywhere like yes. northern virginia just felt like that yes no, that's, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like it, when I moved to D.C. to work, it just felt like, well, I also worked at, um, so like before, so before Arlington, I worked, so I did my practicum, which was at a site in um, southeast D.C., so that's a poor part of D.C., right? So I actually had a really good experience there. I mean, obviously, that area has like, it's challenges in terms of crime, you know, a lot of, there's kind of a lot of like substance abuse, like certain issues there, but I feel like I I generally had like a better, much better experience with the people in the area. Something I kind of noticed is that DC kind of, so it seems like there's two main classes, right? There's like the political aristocratic class that kind of controls the whole town, kind of like owns, basically owns the town. And then there's kind yeah, of the like old the, Ebbing Grill crowd, the, 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 pol- the political class. Yeah. Yep. And then there's the, there's like the working class or even like impoverished like locals that kind of serve that the political class so to speak yeah it's funny you say you like southeast dc because like growing up in that area everyone is like yeah never go to southeast dc because it's uh you know it that was there's like basically there's basically four quadrants of dc Mm -hmm. northwest is is like the sort of posh you know k street type part of the town Mm -hmm. Northeast was like kind of questionable for a lot of people, but it was uh, you could go there. And then Southeast, they're like, yeah, you just don't go there. And so a lot of people like in the area, they've never been to Southeast DC. And then Southwest, I think, is just Arlington. <laughs> yep. Um, well, <clears throat> well, I mean, it does like as you say, you know, it is like higher in crime. It's kind of poor. It's poor. You know, it's high crime. There's a lot of issues there. I just think. It's almost all black too. It's a very black part of town, and it's super yeah. racially segregated. And oh yeah, DC is like one of the. I think DC is in the top ten for the most segregated cities. <clears throat> it makes sense. I mean, it extends out into the burbs too, because like yep. Montgomery County, where I grew up, I wouldn't say it's like super white, but it's uh, it's not very black. Let's put it that way. And then oh, yeah. Prince George's County, which is not a poor area, by the way. Like PG County is like you know solidly middle class. I think it's the wealthiest. Pro- majority black county in the in the country but yes. it's all black like pg county is like way blacker than montgomery county and they're right next to each other yeah i noticed that like i noticed so i call i when i was there i'll call it like east versus west dc so like when i lived in northern so i lived in arlington right like in northern virginia there's like no black people but then like that I, that's like west of dc right then you go east of dc to pg county and it's like majority like majority or at least plurality black that's kind of just noticing off the street I think you're picking up like if you were to chart that air, the DC area by like race, I it would be pretty stark. I think I've seen a map of it, and I was like, mm-hmm. God damn, I didn't. Really, it was that it was that stark, you know. But yeah, it's like split events. Yeah, exactly. Oh god. But like the one thing, I, I mean, I I know what you're saying about the sort of. <clears throat> I'm like trying to come up with like a. Like if there's a term for it, I don't think there is yet. It's just like a collection of like 
observations that I've made over the years of sort of like high anxiety professional class people mm-hmm. like and they're not you know I think they're just caught in these sort of like precarious identities where they're like I- I'm not sure whether they think they're like wealthy or not I'm not sure if they understand whether they're um you know like secure or not I'm not sure they understand whether they're happy or not i'm not sure they understand whether they uh like their life or not like they're just they're they're just very like um uh, uh not it's not even indecisive it's like they literally don't know what to think about their life <laughs> yeah i mean yeah i know what you mean i think i get the like for me it seems like I would sum it up as, you know, they have a long list of, like, things they've done, but they don't know who they are. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. That's a, yeah, yeah, I think that's what it is. There's a, there's a real, like, uh, I almost think of them as, like, uh, those, those replicants, you know, (laughs) where, where they're all, they all seem to be the same person. I know that's, Mm -hmm. like, totally unfair, but it honestly feels like that sometimes. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, it seems like it's people who maybe always took the maybe took a lot of time to like do what was expected of them, but maybe not a lot of time trying to figure out like, well, like, just what do they what do they value though as people? You know, what makes what makes them tick? Like, what do they value? What do they want to live by? Like, what values do they want to live by? So to speak, it seems like a lot of people like as we run into kind of you know they kind of grew up checking the boxes so to speak, but not really asking like what the boxes you know what's the meaning of these boxes like what's the implications yeah and i wonder too whether like that you know there it's there's just this um class of like white collar bureaucrats that uh don't they're just they're literally just jobbers like they're just in a job and um and I'm not excluding myself from this, by the way. Like, I'm, I think I personally overlap and identify with a lot of this, which is why I'm so interested in it. Because I'm like, uh, I, I, I'm not, I'm not even bringing the, these types of people up to be like, hey, look at those people over there. I bring them up to be like, shit, am I like part of them? <laughs> you know, like, but DC's in a way makes it so much worse because it is like this formal bureaucratic layer within the country, and they're literally like these. Um, kind of like amorphously skilled office people, mm-hmm. you know. Like whereas in <clears throat> New York, you have like these uh, where I live, like you have people who have these very weird and like very focused skill sets. Like they're like securities traders, you know, or they're like advertising people, or you know, they're like media people, and they have like a sort of a craft. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not trying to talk them up too much, but they do, you know, like, there there are people that have, like, very specific and, like, concentrated skill sets that really sort of define them. Uh, whereas DC is, like, full of, like, sort of corporate lobbying lawyers, lobbyists, like, just random, just office bureaucrat people. And I don't really know what their skill set is other than to show up to work. <laughs> hmm. So... I don't know if that's part of it is like DC as sort of the middle city of middle management. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, it seems. I mean, it seems like a lot of the jobs like described, you don't really know ex exactly what they do. So, like, I would walk by like Deloitte, you know, a lot while I was there, and I would just be like, I don't know what Deloitte even does. Yeah, like, what like, goes I, on like, in there? <laughs> yeah, well, like they say, like we do, like you know, vague, vague, this, vague. But you see, like, it's not really producing like anything tangible, so to speak, right? Like, it's kind of all like you know, as you mentioned, like, um. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it goes into this big, weird bucket called services and professional yeah. services. And you're like, okay, what does that mean? <laughs> what services are you providing? And <clears throat> it's just never, never clear. And, yeah, you know, even, even like, uh, I went to high school basically across the street from the headquarters of Lockheed Martin. Mm -hmm. And, um, like, in the, in the news, like, Lock they make Lockheed Martin sound like way sexier than it really is. Because when people think of Lockheed Martin, and I, I mean sex, like bad sexy now, right? Like evil, which yeah. I'm, I'm including in the term sexy, like, you know, at least it has like an identity, like, oh, evil Lockheed. And then you think of like Tony Stark and, you know, like all that shit and, and um, they're making weapons. But the reality is like the vast majority of Lockheed Martin's business is just the same shit as Deloitte. They do consulting. They have like management consulting arm. They have an IT consulting arm huge armies of just sort of like moderately skilled technical people you know being farmed out to like these giant you know uh you know u.s government apparatuses like the department of energy department of education yep. and what are they doing i have no idea they're just like configuring software and going to meetings all day they're busy as shit like my friends who do this are like super busy but what yeah. are they doing nobody knows <laughs> Yeah, because I actually worked a little bit. Like, when I worked in Arlington, that's I worked at a government consultancy, right? And I just, yeah, I just, I mean, it was work that, you know, it gave you money, but it was, I don't know, it's kind of a bullshit job, to be honest. And, like, every, I feel like all my coworkers and I, we kind of knew it, too, because we all had that, like, thousand yards there while we worked, kind of, like, office yeah. space. Yeah, But it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even when we did, like, you know, when we make, like, tan, well, like, so we would have, we're all young professionals, so we're all kind of under 35. And even when we, like, would, would make something tangible, like, say, a map or a chart, you know, we never really got to, like, take any credit for it because, you know, sort of, like, the management class would kind of use it and do whatever with it. But it seemed like, yeah, if you're not part of, like, a certain, like, if you don't work your way up towards that manager who doesn't do anything, you just kind of are a pawn in the game, so to speak. I it's so sad too, because I gotta say, like I'm, I'm sounding super, like I'm dunking on my hometown, um, ruthlessly, but we are. But like, just a couple weekends ago, I went down to go visit my like my elderly parents, mm -hmm. who are still in the who are still in the area, and um, I took my mother, uh, my wife and I took my mother out to Washington to the to the city, like the. Mm -hmm like the center, like the federal, you know, where the Smithsonian is. We, we, I took her to the Smithsonian and the Asian art museum. And it was so beautiful and not just the mall and the museum, but also like these federal buildings over by like LaFont Plaza. And there we parked, I parked my car by I think the department of education. And these, it's like these big, beautiful sort of mid century imposing, almost like imperialistic, mid-century internationalist style office buildings that are just gorgeous compared to you know the kind of sh glass and steel shit that we see going up today mm -hmm. and um and then we walked over to the asian art museum that has like an amazing collection purchased with 
you know, drug money by the Sacklers or whatever. But fine, it's yeah. a gorgeous collection. And <clears throat> just watching, just like being there on this gorgeous day. And I'm like, this is a really beautiful city. And then I remember growing up there as a kid. And <clears throat> it was a amazing place because it was truly diverse. There were like so many people from so many different parts of the world where their first stop was where they're they're there's they they chose to live in the the dc area because there were so many jobs and then the public transport was really good the school systems were really good and i just remember telling my friends i'm like that now that don't know the area i'm like it was the closest thing that you could get i i believe to growing up in a socialist society you know where all the museums were free and you know there was all these cultural events going on all the time and there were people from all over the world and everything just worked and this was like the 80s and the 90s. And maybe that's the era your parents remember. Because they yeah, seem to so, remember it fairly fondly. Yeah, so I think the big, one of the biggest thing my mom remembers, you know how like DC right now kind of feels very on edge? Like there's all, there always seems to be like new fences going up. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, yep. So what my mom said is like one of when, and they have photos of this in the 90s. So they got like really close to the White House by modern standards, of course, but said like you used to be able to just walk into your congressman's office to chat with them like if you know i had to like she would talk about oh i had to go to the bathroom so i just went i went right to the went right up the stairs to congress and then yep. i ran a, ran into a few politicians but i didn't need to talk to them so i just went to the bathroom you know all the like if if there were security guards at all they were like very polite you know very courteous and i just thought she was talking about like a different planet right because if you go to like in that those locations now it's just very like i don't know how to say it like it's just kind of like a, like everyone's very suspicious of each other, so to speak. You know, there's guard, there's always police, there's always guards, always new fences going up. Oh, you know what? I mean, that's I, I've had the exact same feeling as what your mom is saying because when I was in high school and in college, and I, I went to the University of Maryland, which is very close. It's in the east part of DC, right, PG County. Yep. Um, and so we would go down to DC all the time. We would go to the, the we would go to like um, <clears throat> the DC. What is it called? The DC River? No, the wherever the graves are down in the, the Navy Potomac Yard. River? The Navy. It's the Anacostia River. It's called like oh, yeah, the Navy one. Navy Yard or something. Yeah. Uh, or we go like Dupont Circle or whatever. And then when we were in high school, bored out of our minds, we would drive down to the mall. Um, the mall being you know, the, cent- the central lawn of the c- of the city. And, mm-hmm. like, we would literally, like, just drive up to the Capitol at, like, 11 p.m. And we would just sit on the steps of the Capitol, you know, either uh, drinking from a flask or smoking cigarettes, like a bunch of, you know, uh, like a bunch of idiot teenagers. Or we just, where we do it at, like, the Lincoln Memorial or whatever. Nobody cared. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the White House, you could walk up pretty much to the fence, to the front yard of it. Yep. But then the other, I think, last Christmas... Um, same thing. Like I'll go down, you know, I, I, I like to take my, uh, parents out, you know, get some fresh air in them every, <laughs> and so I took them to go see the Christmas tree and I thought it would be nice to see the Chris, the white house Christmas tree or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it was like, the, they moved the Christmas tree out so far where it's not even on the white house lawn anymore. It's in a park that's like on the other side. And there's like literally like three layers of fencing now between you and just the front lawn of the of the white house which isn't even itself that close to the white house so the white house looks like this really far off building and you have three layers of fences 
And the whole thing just seems like it. The, the message couldn't be clearer. I remember telling my wife, like, look at this. Like, the messages stay the fuck out. And I was like, this is a totally different America um, than the one I remember. Um, the one I remember was, you know, this was this is this city is your city. These buildings are your buildings. And now yeah. it's like they're protected from the siege and they're like, who are you? What are you doing here? <laughs> You're like, oh, my God. Yeah, because like, is, I mean, is it really a democracy if you have to treat your citizens like, you know, like suspects that can't be trusted from the, the own government that's supposed to, you know, be of them? It certainly feels different. Um, it, 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 it's a sad, it really feels sad because the, the thing that I do, and I'm dunking on DC as it exists today. I, I loved the area growing up. I thought that it really embodied uh, all of the sort of like positive things that people said about America um, mm-hmm. sort of at its height. And, uh, or at least it's sort of second, the, the, I, I, I kind of think of it as like sort of like the second the second great period of America's, you know, after the post-war period coming out of the Cold War and things were just looking up and up and up. And, you know, it's sad because I don't know how you feel about this or you'll take it because we're different generations, I believe. It sounds like mm-hmm. it anyway. Um, yeah, I'm like a younger millennial, older Gen Z. So I was born in the mid nineties, so I'm like on uh, that kind of cusp between millennials and Gen Z. Okay, we probably have like about a fifteen year gap. Um, so I'm like, I'm like late Gen X. Oh, okay. So I was born in seventy eight, so I'm like, I'm technically Gen X, like the sort of like the last part of it. And um, so I remember the nineties really well, and I remember the eighties too as a kid, and nineties as a sort of teenager, and mm-hmm. um. You know, now we're so rightfully, you know, I I actually share this with your generation is this deeply, deeply critical view of the United States, which I think is the right view. But part of that, which I think is probably correct, okay, this is definitely my own bias because things became more clear later as to what was really going on. But I felt like, there is missing now in a lot of people of your generation a real sense. And I feel sorry for people now because they, they don't feel, they haven't really felt or believed in the country actually being like moving forward <laughs> and being like a positive thing. Because like there's no basis to feel that way anymore. Like everything I hear is just an abomination. Like, yeah, because, I uh, mean, one of my early, I mean, so I'm, like, just just barely, barely old enough to remember 9-11, and to be honest, I actually don't remember it firsthand, but all the only America I've really known, sort of, like, from my early memories is, like, Iraq, and then Iraq up to the present. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, which, th- that was the really the beginning of the, um, the fall, really, um, was I, I would trace it back to Iraq and like the the first real. Um, here's another thing people don't remember because they've been comparing um, October seventh and everything that's been going on in Palestine to nine eleven is it's totally different because after nine eleven like whatever people felt I don't know what people around the world felt I'm sure some people were like hey you know fuck the United States you know future type thinkers you know forward looking people but like. 
I felt for the most part, and I think this is true, that around the world, more or less, the feeling was one of, okay, the U.S. got fucked over here. You know, like there was a general feeling like they did something wrong to the Americans. That wasn't that wasn't nice. That wasn't good. And people around the world, countries around the world, actually supported the United States. Right? They didn't think of us as, uh, or at least not formally. I, I'm sure they thought things behind our back, but they did. They didn't say these things. Um, and so 9/11 was very different because the world kind of rallied behind America. You know, and that's just not the case now. The world doesn't. We're, we're alone. Like, you know, no one, we, I think people coming up now and they're just getting their, um, political identities sort of, um, developing now, like, you know, I guess in their teenagers and stuff like that. Now they're like, they don't really know anything else. And so I like, they're not, I'm not shocked, for example, that, um, bin Laden's letter to America went viral on TikTok. Mm-hmm. I'm not shocked at all. Uh, it makes perfect sense to me that it did. I mean, it cert- that certainly wasn't how young people felt post 9-11. But then the Iraq war, and then it f- turned out they were fucking lying, and the war had nothing to do with 9-11. And just slowly, uh, maybe not even so slowly, because it wasn't even that long ago. It was like 20 years ago. Um, within 20 years, I mean, it, I, I feel like the, 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 gut v- the gut feeling about America has just totally just changed. And it it's very sad to me. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I know, I mean, some of this is like my first hand. So like, I mean, you obviously know like the traumatic story that happened to me. It's not something I'll go into detail, but you know, so that's been like two years, so to speak. But like, I think, I don't think I really started to question like our system until that incident happened, you know, to me and several of my peers where, you know, we still I won't say much about it, but just so, just so it's clear, like this has to do with your experience with an institution, right? Yes. Not, yeah. So, so the thing is, like me and my peers, like we're completely unable to secure any justice for ourselves, just because we do not have, like, none of us are wealthy enough to be able to afford to take them to court. And you know, we're not alone. Like a lot of these institutions, like I don't, a lot of like well-known institutions, they take advantage of the fact that students are like generally poor to basically screw them over because they know that students can't afford to sue them and do anything about it. So, I mean, some of my Act peers with impunity. Did, yep. So, like, some of my peers actually did try hiring, like, lawyers to, you know, negotiate out of court, right? Because that's cheaper. But the thing is, what they do is they still wall the lawyer until the student gives up and runs out of money. And so, I think just the helplessness of realizing, you know, this is the land of the free, the home of the brave, right? And yet, you know, so we're a few, we're a ragtag group of like everyday people. We just got institutionally screwed over and abused and we're completely helpless to do anything about it. And this is the land of the brave. And, and not only do you not have, I mean, it's one thing to say like, okay, we don't have the resources to fight back, but it, it's, a, it's also a commentary to be like, you know, that's, um, that's how institutions these days corporations, education, government, you know, what you name it, just really don't seem to give a fuck about the people that they're in charge of. No. And, and it like, wasn't, I'm telling you, it wasn't always that way. Like, that's not how it used to be. It really didn't, I mean, I'm not saying it was all fucking, you know, rainbows and unicorns and stuff, but there was an ethic, I do believe, if I recall correctly, where educators cared about students, employers did to a greater extent than today care about employees and governments cared about their people and 
Um, and it's all uh, inverted now. It's so fucking weird. Yeah, it is. I mean, the thing is, like, I mean, the thing what gets me is, like, I'm sh- like I'm obviously not old enough to really remember those days, but it seems like modern, like, these institutions in the U.S. right now, they're kind of resting on their laurels. Like, it seems like the modern people that run mm. these institutions are mm. mostly, like, greedy and incompetent and coasting on reputations that were built on the generations before them, right? And yet, these are the people that, you know, we're giving sort of carte blanche to kind of make decisions for the country, make decisions for the people under them. And they're basically using it to kind of solely as a way to inflate their own egos and they're kind of and they're overt about it like um like i know for my institution like they they just overtly are like we can do whatever we want because we're this institution and i don't i don't i mean you you probably have a better perspective than i do i don't really remember anything different but i kind of it makes sense to me that people of my generation would be like so cynical of how like things are when we grew up in a time where you know our institutions and our people in charge are just very unapologetically don't give a fuck. Yeah. I mean, I think I was at it. I came into adulthood sort of like at, at the inflection point. Uh, I was 23 at the time of nine 11, 22, 23. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I started to see things. That's interesting. That's like right midway. Uh, to where I am now. So this broke like right in the middle of my life to this point. And, uh, and everything changed after nine 11. I think nine 11 was the real major turning point for everything. And that that's when, for example, like you couldn't just waltz into, you know, Congress anymore, <laughs> you know, the Capitol building and uh, you know, the, the, the sort of like ideal, there were a lot of things about Washington that, were designed to reflect the ideals of an open democracy. Like the fact that buildings were just open to the public and, mm-hmm. you know, um, well, luckily the Smithsonian still is like that. That's great. People should go visit the Smithsonian. It's amazing. Uh, the fact that it still exists is great. Um, uh, but it, it's after nine 11, like we just couldn't do that anymore, you know? And, uh, what was I? What was the point of this? Was to say, um, I yo, I think like that. One of the big problems was in the eighties and nineties. Everyone was very forward thinking. Like people like were excited about the future. They were excited about their own personal future. They saw like we saw things change every fucking year. They came out with a new video game console that was like super fucking cool. <laughs> you know, everything just got better all the time, and. Uh, and we had all these like the culture was like really imaginative and it was always thinking about the future and music was changing and and you know films were were uh exploring mm-hmm. notions of future and everyone was excited and so there was a person there was a feeling of like um uh of planning like your life and your work we're fundamentally, we were all sort of like fundamentally oriented towards the future. And that I think is something we took for granted. Like, you know, no one really noticed. We just assumed that that's how life was all the time anyway. Like doesn't everyone think that way? But now I think about it and I'm like, you know what? I don't think people really believe in the future anymore. No one, we don't have any movies talking about how great or cool the world's going to be in 2040. You know, like we don't care oh, no. we don't so we about kinda, that anymore. No. Nah. 
you know. I Back mean, in the eighties, every movie was like you know all these movies were set pl- in place in the two thousand you know twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen, and you know everything was fucking great. Not not necessarily great. I mean, they would do like dystopian shit, but the di- thing was the world was different. Like yeah. come twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen or whatever. Back to the future. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, have you ever seen? There was like a parody of like Back to the Future of circa twenty fifteen. So it had like, I mean, I don't know if maybe I'll send it to you if I find it, but it had like Marty going into like twenty fifteen, but it was like actual twenty fifteen, <laughs> yeah. and then he's just like, "Where's this hover boys? Where's all this?" And it's and then one of his boys just came and it's like, "Hey Marty, like this twenty fifteen? Well, like, oh, you're not gonna punch me, right? It's like, I don't have to punch you. I just I'll just text you on Facebook and tell you to commit suicide. That's how bullying works in twenty fifteen. It was pretty funny, but yeah, like a very disappointing future. That's yeah. yeah, I mean, I feel like any all the movies that come out that involve the future now are all like dystopian. You ever notice that? From when? What what era? Like modern era, like post twenty ten movie. They're not only are they dystopian, but they're like they're the future is always like sort of backwards. Like, um, they're they're like where the technology is actually worse, like Mad Max mm-hmm. style, you know, or yep. like some zombie apocalypse where like the world never advanced. And it just sort of like, you know, what people, when people think about the future, I think what everyone's hoping for now is a reset. I think people are itching not for an advancement to be like, yeah, let's keep going, man. Let's like go where this is going to lead us. It's going to be awesome. I think everyone's looking at this and they're like, man, we really fucked this up. I think we need to hit reset. And so there's a lot of movies now where they're like, you know, thinking about how the world ends and then all the bullshit gets wiped off the face of the planet. You've got these like super um, sort of like competent and devoted survivors who are going to like restart the world. And that's a very... Uh, telling sort of premise, but so many movies are made like that now. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yep, Divergent, Hunger Games, just a few of the you know young adult ones. Yeah, I just saw one not that long ago, like randomly on I think Netflix, and it was like Tom Hanks. He was like the last man on Earth. That kind of shit, you know. I'm like, oh, how yeah. many of these movies are you gonna make? And he was just going around with a dog and a robot. Oh, I am Legend. No, no, no! It was Tom Hanks. It was so weird. Oh, I don't man. even. I forgot the name of the movie, but it was like it was like an I Am Legend type setup, but it was just this like Netflix film, like you know, small time film, but like you know, this. I think the idea was that like we were just going to rebuild, but this time it would be AI, like mm-hmm. it would be AI that would retake over the planet, and not human beings or some, some shit. I don't know, whatever. But the point being, everyone's thinking about a reset. Like you know, everyone's. It's either like uh, climate doomerism or nuclear apocalypse mm-hmm. or you know AI or some shit. But yeah. in any event, the world ends. It never advances beyond a certain point, and we have this sort of fantasy blank canvas on which we can uh, you know think of almost like limitless futures because we hit reset. You know, we start mm-hmm. all over again. Yeah, I wonder how much that has to do with, you know, a lot of the modern life, like, so like, we've been around, like, we've had agriculture civilization for like 10,000 years, right? Then we've, we've had industrial civilization, civilization, sorry, about like 200 years, but we're still kind of wired for like, that kind of nature hunter gatherer, sort of mindset deep within our brains, right? And I, some, some, some part of me wonders, does this sense of like, doomerism and wanting a reset have to do with the fact that, you know, a lot of modern 
life has become like so against what we evolved for that we're just kind of low-key tech like checking out so to speak i think so i think it's really repressed you know um but it comes Mm -hmm. out that's why i think like the world is really strange right now because it's like it's it's on the one hand like super repressed and like almost it's almost like um anesthetic like it's it puts you to sleep like um you know this this prototype of a or this archetype of like a of a dc bureaucrat you know with a mortgage that's too big and a wife that he argues with a lot and kids that are a pain in the ass and a job that he hates you know whatever right like that Mm -hmm. that archetype um lives this very sort of like mundane and featureless existence okay that's everywhere all right that's like you're driving around you're like that's everywhere but then you get these just like these outbursts all the time of just like complete insanity <laughs> you know mm-hmm. like it's people just completely fucking flip and they'll go and you just get these like some random guy just goes to fucking bowling alley and just shoots 16 people in the face and you're like what you know <laughs> what where's this coming from so it's like on the one hand it's like super it's it's just you know it's just super repressed um and then on the other you just get these insane outbursts and oh, I, yeah. I think that those are related you know what i mean yeah also what i was thinking is so like the u.s has always been very individualistic right but we've gotten like kind of that's kind of gotten into like hyper overdrive for my generation and i can't help but think like the kind of social isol the increased social isolation and anomie and the kind of ideals that we ascribe to being alone, which is kind of stupid, but we ascribe like being ideal, being alone as ideal or just having like one nuclear family, right? Part of me wonders how much of a role that plays and kind of how unhappy generally people are within 2023 at least. Would you say that that characterizes your generation that a lot of people think that way or? Um, I mean, I think a lot, I think the law of us are kind of, products of that mentality so to speak like we we can't like we consciously right we want something different you know we tend to support more collectivist policies but i think we just the way we act though is kind of more i don't know i guess like antisocial, so to speak you know you've probably heard the meme that a lot of us don't even know how to socialize a person anymore mm. you um, think that's true you think that i mean or an out there's an element of truth to that i mean i think i mean i would say it's slightly exaggerated but I think there's some element of truth to that in the sense that we, I mean, we do rely more, a lot more on like technology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I have this theory. I was talking to a friend about this who was like my age. And I was saying like, um, because he has kids, young kids mm-hmm. um, in like uh, middle school. Mm-hmm. And he was kind of complaining about the kids generation, you know, like, the very, very young generation. I don't even know if there's a name for his, his Gen generation. Alpha. Gen Alpha, okay. Yep. And um, but you know, Gen Alpha is displaying, let's say, a lot of um traits that when we benchmark against when we were their age, like, you know, wasn't the case. Like we were far more independent. Um we were far more like rebellious, mm-hmm. you know, like and we wanted autonomy, whereas like it seems like their kids age like they're not developing we all like we had always assumed that Mm -hmm. 
uh this was like a natural feature of growing up was that like by the time you hit like your sort of early teens even maybe a little bit before then you started hiding stuff from your parents you mm-hmm. started rebelling you started sneaking out and you wanted to spend more time with your with your peers yeah you know rather than your parents and then that seems to have diminished a bit yes yeah so i can actually talk a bit about it so there's actually a book called iGen it's by like uh it's by joan twenge g, g twenge sorry so she's a psychologist that how do you how do you spell the last name uh twenge t-w-g-e-n-g-e so she wrote a book oh, called okay. iGen and it's on gen z so it's not out so it's a few years old but she talks about this so gen z is generally growing up at a much more slower pace so they're getting so we you know we're well i guess i'm sort of gen z kind of on the border but like just by actual data we're you know we're not we're getting driver's licenses far less at a you know at a mm. later age you know we yeah don't i've rebe- noticed that too yeah we don't rebel as much you know we have we don't have as much sex i mean i mean the upside is we don't have as much teen pregnancy but we're just we're not dating you know we're not having sex or car accidents yeah we don't have car accidents but <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah we don't even hang out with friends as much anymore you know we kind of we're kind of growing up later, so to speak. And I've definitely noticed, like, an inf- there's even compared with my generation from the mid 90s, there's kind of been an increase in infantilization of US culture. So, yeah. So, yeah. yeah so, kind of, so, something I noticed is um, I mean, I could talk a bit more about this because it's kind of like where my formal training is. So, su- no, I find this super interesting. So, go, go into it. So, I noticed, like, this wasn't even the case 10 years ago when I would have been in, you know, my, been in my teens. But if you look at like a college campus's campus counseling center today, you know, you'll see things like they'll have like little seminars you can go to on like sort of and sometimes they'll have like the dogs, you know, animals there. But it'll be like this very, very infantilized, infantilizing kind of like it's almost like elementary school class, you know, where it's going to we're going to have relaxation class. You know, we're going to teach people how to sleep well. We're going to teach, you know, we're going to have like a sort of a session where kids can you know college students so these are legal adults they can come in and pet dogs and release their stress like little seminars on you know stress management like kind of like kind of like hr kind of like hra stuff but it's Mm -hmm. very infantilized like sometimes some of them will have like little cartoon characters sorry i'm not the most i mean i'm not the most verbally articulate person but essentially it's a kind of infantilization that even like someone my age didn't quite see when I was an undergrad and I'm not even that many years out of undergrad. You, you know, you know, there's um a really, there are two really interesting viral tweets uh, of the same, um, of the same sort that I found super interesting that kind of demonstrate that what you're talking about probably mm-hmm. is happening the first was a video shot in a high school. It was like a day in the life of a high school video shot in like the mid or early 1980s on like a camcorder. Mm-hmm. And it was just like a typical, you know, mostly white suburban middle class, upper middle class uh, high school somewhere. Yeah. And... um It went around all over the internet, like on Twitter and stuff where people were like holy shit, like, these high schoolers look like fucking middle-aged adults. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they, and I looked and I was like, yeah, okay, I can kind of see that. You know, like, they, they looked a lot older than they do now. And, like, the, 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 the girls, I guess we would call them girls now, right? Like, in high school. Mm-hmm. 
looked like young women, like women. They look like women. Uh, they they kind of look like um, you know, like high school shows on TV where like the actress, actors and actresses are like a bit too old to be playing. High yeah, they're student. like in their yeah, they're in their twenties. Yeah, they're in like their mid to late twenties and stuff. But that's actually what they looked like in this video. Like not just one or two, but like the whole class. And mm-hmm. then the dudes were they, you know, they had like mustaches and they looked like they had jobs. You know, yeah. and everyone was like, "What the fuck?" And then uh, there was another one. It was this exact same thing. It was someone went into a high school in two thousand two, which is yeah. only you know twenty years ago, and. People were saying the same thing. They were like, whoa, high school used to look look like this. Now, it was way less pr- less pronounced, at least to me, because I was actually graduated. I went to high school before then. I went. I graduated high school in 1996. Mm-hmm. But it looked a lot. 2002 looked a lot like 1996. It was a very similar thing. I was watching this video, and I'm like, yeah, that's what high school looked like. What are you guys talking about? Everyone was like, they look like that? That's what high school was like in 2002? And I... With 2002, I didn't understand what people were talking about. I'm like, they just look like high school students to me. And so there was one version which was, you know, probably like, let's put 20 years before that first video. And I could tell. I'm like, yeah, they were definitely more mature and older then or seemed older. And then by the time I got to 2002, I myself, I was like, they just look like high school students to me. But people Mm -hmm. on the social media that were of a younger generation, maybe closer to your age, were like... Um. Yeah, I don't recognize. This doesn't look like high school, yeah. and I think they're saying that they looked older than high. You know, it seemed older. Yeah, I mean, I was gonna. So I was gonna. So I was gonna tell you. So about this. So this is a college, like you know, university student, like counseling center, right? And then they have like a little poster that's like it's really cutesy. It's called positive affirmation painting. Jeez. And then it just has like a cutesy. You know, it has one of those like children's illustration. And it's, you know, it's, it's targeted towards the students, right? It's like, if you're feeling stressed, there's also one called, like, self-care. And it has, like, you know, making, like, little pots of, like, flower, like, making little flower pots. Like, putting, like, the dirt in, putting little flowers in. And there's another one where it's, like, you know, if you're feeling triggered, if you're feeling stressed, you know, we got we got therapy dogs here. You can pet them. You know, we got hot chocolate. And this, it, this is all, like, very recent stuff, right? And it's just kind of, like, well, I'm not that much older than, like, these undergrads. And, this this is like completely Weird. foreign to me. Like it's it's yeah. very inf- I mean for me it's just very infantilizing. You know I mean maybe I'm just too old now, but I kind of yeah let, I kind let, of catch. Let me let me ask you this. Um, in your because this I don't know if this is like in your field or whatever, but let me tell you what happened in my high school during prom. Mm-hmm. The big fear was that we would get drunk and get into an accident driving you know because everyone was going to go to this party there was people were going to obviously sneak alcohol into the party and then we we're going to drive home and get into a car accident and so they did a scared straight program to make sure that this didn't happen and so they took a de- they took a car that had been in an actual accident mm-hmm. and it was wrecked i mean the whole thing was just fucking wrecked like you know it was a complete like tank like t- you know splintered mess of steel and glass and they just dropped it on the front lawn of our high school <laughs> and said don't do this <laughs> and then they put us into all oh, the the entire senior class they put us into um i'll never forget this they put us into the auditorium and they had one of the i think he was the f- parent of either a student or like he was a parent in uh, his he had a 
kid in the county somewhere and he would just go high school to high school giving his spiel about don't don't drink and drive. Mm-hmm. And he was an insurance adjuster guy. Mm-hmm. And his job was to show up to the scene of fatal car accidents and record what he saw um, at the at the scene before the police and you know whatever cleaned it up. And he took he showed a series of absolutely gruesome videos, mm-hmm. people that had been beheaded in car accidents, and he would get up real close so there was no mistaking what you were seeing. You would see a fully decapitated head in the back seat of a car and he would zoom in real close and we would all have to watch this. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's not something tells me they wouldn't do that anymore. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I mean, so we didn't get anything that gruesome, but when I was in early high, earlier high school, so this would be like 2010 or so we did get some, we did get like a public service announcement of a, like a sort of, you know, actress car accident, but I feel like the more the deeper I got into high school, and it's a lot worse now, the more it wasn't really on, like, you know, don't drink and drive kids. I don't think they were really worried about that. I think mm. there was starting, I mean, I think we were just starting to talk about, like, oh, yeah, kids are, like, depressed, you know, they're going to commit suicide. We, it's more of that. But we also got a bit, a lot of, like, you know, if you don't go to college, you'll, you'll like, scrub toilets for the rest of your life. So go to college, kids, like, be successful. I feel like compare with your generation, there was a lot more, there's a lot, lot, lot more competitive pressure in the sense, you know, we have to go to college, we have to get a degree. And for some kids, you know, you have to go to elite college, you know, and, but this was still at a point where we, no one really questioned, overtly questioned these institutions yet. But the, mm-hmm. yeah, compared with your generation, I don't think we saw the same, like, don't drink and drive, you know, don't, don't have sex type of stuff. We saw a lot more of like mental health and go to college. We, you know, I will say that because um, I have uh, nephews that are coming up in high school right now in mm-hmm. where actually where I pretty much where I went to high school. They're not in the same high school, but like a neighboring high school yeah. in Maryland. And um, I'll say that we, me growing up and my sister grew up in that area. She's she's uh, nine years older still than me. Um. I would say relative to my nephew's cohort in the same schools, same schools mm-hmm. uh, that despite and, and everything that you're saying about the infantil infantilization of the culture surrounding uh, kids, these or, or, you know, uh, high school students and, 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 and older where as before we might want to see them as adults. Now we kind of want to, keep them as children almost it seems Mm -hmm. i would say that the result though is while they do seem in some ways more youthful or child childlike than we were Mm -hmm. like you know they don't really want to drive totally true like that i totally see that like they don't they're not interested in driving they can see their friends online uh they're happy to have their mom their mom and dad drive them around they're you know they're used to mom and dad just kind of serving their whims uh okay so there's a little bit of a in you know child uh extended childhood with them but at the same time you get these really weird uh behaviors where some of the stories that they tell me are fucking creepy you know like one kid he uh has a uh he has a youtube channel Mm-hmm. where he does like sort of 
he pre he okay it's a he, i didn't see this channel but he told me about it and it, it disturbed me it's a and he he found it right he said his friend was doing a secret youtube channel uh where he was doing asmr you know what asmr is he like talks into the microphone like this oh uh, not really no okay it's it's an audio anyway it's supposed to be he basically talks about being your boyfriend but it's for adults oh that's weird <laughs> okay and it, yeah it was really weird and uh he, like he was getting he was getting he was making money off this and it was a secret and then there was another kid who um died from like fentanyl overdose oh yeah and he his father came out and said um that his son had been struggling with alcoholism and depression since the age of 14 and i'm like what Oh yeah, 14? that's yeah, that's huge now. Like we're getting so like this is so like, even compared with my generation, you're get we're getting like elementary school kids who are like depressed, you know, who are committing suicide. Who are like well, there's a lot more ER visits now of mental, mental health reasons of like younger okay, what and the younger, fuck is younger that? kids. Is, do you have a theory for this? I mean, this is terrifying. I mean, Gene Twenge's theory. So that's a psychologist whose book I mentioned. I read her, this book. Yeah, yeah. I'll I, I Jen, you said the that book. Yep. Yeah, kind of like iPhone. So like I, then G, Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Yeah, so her theory is social media, technology, dependence. Like that's kind of her entire book. I mean, I think it's a bit more complicated than that. So my opinion is that there's a lot, there's widespread. So there's societal, there's economic, there's cultural issues that are a big factor in our declining mental health. Uh, one thing I do think the U.S. culture is, I mean, this kind of goes hand in hand with technology, right? Technology dependence, but also a culture of extreme individualism. So there's a lot of focus. And I'll talk a bit about therapy, too. So, I mean, you know, that's some of my that's some of my professional training. So the prolif- the proliferation of therapy hasn't improved like the mental health uh, the collect- on a collective level. Does um, not seem like it. Oh no! Because but instead, I mean, instead, it's kind of been weaponized to inf- reinforce this kind of isolationism, so to speak. You know, it, like, don't rely on other people. You know, don't have a community. Like, if you have an issue, just keep it with your therapist. So we're, it's kind of being weaponized to reinforce like very isolationism that I think is a factor mm-hmm. in like our de- declining public mental health. And one thing I'll say about that is, um, I think one of the issues is that therapy is. It's kind of treated as a panacea right now, you know, for all the problems in the world, but it's really about individual level coping with the world as it is, not really about changing the world to be better. And I really think there needs to be changes to make the world better if you want to see, like, you know, collective improvement in mental health. Politics as as opposed to therapy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm not saying like it's useless. I mean, I, you know, I've, I mean, I've done both good and bad therapy. I mean, honestly, I don't really like the field, to be honest. I think there's a lot of, and I'm working and I do like, I I do do like activism as well as like, you know, working with like reporters to try to expose it. But there's a, I think, I think what people don't realize is that, so in our modern culture, there's kind of like an all therapists are kind of treated almost as like secular clergy. But the reality mm. is, is that therapists are just flawed people like anyone else. If anything, they're often even more flawed than the average person. I mean, I'll be honest, I've never seen such, I've never like been exposed to such like horrifically, horrifically callous and like horrifically abusive 
behavior. Wow. As compared as when I was, you know, training to be a therapist, like in those programs, like those professors, like I haven't, like since I'm not in the field right now, I've never seen such abusive callousness as I saw why, in that program. Why would they be since. in that field if they were, if they were as misanthropic as that, do you think? I mean, I think the field attracts a lot of damaged people who kind of want to use the field to figure out who they are. But also because, like, the field, so it's pretty subjective, right? So it doesn't have, like, the same rigor that, say, medical training does. So it kind of attracts a lot of, like, I mean, I'll be blunt here. It kind of attracts a lot of, like, dumb people, a lot of, like, dumbasses who wouldn't be able to, like, pass a more objective course. So they kind of Mm. just kind of go into the field so they can kind of, like, mess around and earn a paycheck. Because it's one of those fields where it's it's hard to do well and it's very worthwhile to do, but it's very easy to coast by. Yeah. You know, um, I've never, I've never had a therapist. I've never done therapy, but I have a lot of friends who do rely on it and, uh, and some good, I mean, some seems to be quite good. And I, I do think that some people really do need therapy, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. like, uh, uh, but, uh, tell me what you think of this analogy. This might not be the best analogy though. I, I think it actually is apt, um, Though I, it's hard for me to say because I've never been to therapy, but I, sometimes I think of therapists almost as the emotional analog of a sex worker. Yeah, where... yeah, a lot of people say that. It's kind of like emotional prostitution. Oh, really? That's a common Yeah, thing it's been called that before. I mean, it's getting mm. more common because I feel like, okay. I mean, I think that criticism of therapy has also been like more mainstream as like, I mean, there's all. I mean, I don't know if you've probably noticed this. There's so there's been like a proliferation of therapy speak, and then now there's kind of a backlash against that because people are weaponizing therapy speak to be assholes to like their friends, their family, and such. Mm-hmm. I just want to build on that to say, you know, I don't think people realize that it's not just it's not just stupid kids on TikTok weaponizing therapy speak to be assholes. Like a lot of therapists and therapy professors themselves weaponize therapy speak to treat other people, to treat, you know, their students, their friends, their family poorly. This is the end of part one of a two-part podcast. If you want to listen to the second part, it's over on our Patreon feed. If you want to get access to it, go to patreon.com slash and sign up as a supporter.